the third chapter of John. Last time we got down verse 7 and 8. Um, so just to review just for a, a moment at where we are, certainly this is probably the most well-known chapter that there is in the New Testament. Um, but here we've got Jesus in chapter 2. He's come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast and remembering that there's multitudes of people, Jews from all over the world, that have come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And He has cleansed the temple. He overturned the money changers' table. He's drove out the oxen and the sheep and those that sold them. And He's made the claim that in three days the temple would be destroyed. In three days He would raise it up. And so it's at this time that there's all these folks that have seen him, that maybe they've heard his teaching, they've saw some works that he's done, and and they believe on him. But as he says in chapter 2, Jesus doesn't believe in them. So we, we can look later in John, and I'm sure you remember all this. There's a scripture that says, and they believed on him and said... When Messiah comes, will He do greater works than these? So there's, there's a believing on or in that's in the head. It's a, a fleshly knowledge, a carnal knowledge, but it's not that work of God that's been done. And so it's in this setting that Nicodemus comes. They're at Jerusalem, the Passover. All of these folks, they're musing in their mind, who is He? Is He the Savior? Is he uh, uh, one of the prophets raised up? Who is this man? Well, Nicodemus comes to him by night and says, Look, Master, we know that you're from God. We're confident that you are a man that has come from God because there's no way that these works could be done outside of that. A very logical argument. And it's one that we're going to see several times in John. The man born blind is one of the greatest examples of it. You say this man's not of God. It's amazing to me that I'm a man born blind and he's gave me his sight. How could he do a work like that if he weren't from God? And so Jesus doesn't take to flattery and we know they come and try to flatter him to get him to fall or make an error in his speech or in his judgment. But Jesus' response to Nicodemus's statement was, except a man be born again, unless there is a requirement that you be born again, remembering what that word means. It means to be begat from above. There must be a work that's not of the flesh, but that is of God, that's done in the heart in order for man to see the kingdom of God. And we said last week, and I'm sure... Uh, if you're saved, you know exactly what we're talking about. That in order for you to see the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, in order for you to see that God was in control, you were sinful and guilty, and that Jesus was your only hope, a work of God had to be done in the heart. What is commonly called in our area conviction. We need old time conviction. What we need is regeneration. What we need is people to be born from above. And when God does a work in the heart, they'll see the kingdom of God at that point. So see, a lot of times it's, it's backwards. The cart is before the horse. And we say people need to be convicted, come up here and be born again. When what Jesus is saying here is, a work's got to be done before you come up here. God must do a work. And Nicodemus, if God doesn't open your heart, then you're not going to see, and on down in verse 5, you're not going to enter into the kingdom. So Jesus has said to Nicodemus, this is a work that is required for a man to come into the kingdom of God. I don't think anybody would argue with those statements. Uh, they may argue with a lot more. But in verse 4, Nicodemus says, How can this be? Can I enter into my mother's womb again? Again, he's thinking in the flesh. And I thought about this this week. You think about being saved, and you think about it with a carnal mind, 
as they read the Word of God. And that's where you get the easy as ABC. Just admit, believe, and confess. Just say it with your mouth and you can be saved. It's just that easy in order to do that. that that's where man gets that from. Because is, is that not true? You come to God. You believe in your heart. Confession is made. And all that call on the Lord shall be saved. And as you think on it with a carnal mind, well, that's as easy as pie. But see, the spiritual here, Jesus is saying, there's got to be a work done, Nicodemus, that you can't do. Nicodemus is saying, I can't do that. And so we come and we got down to verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now as he's talking to a Pharisee, to a Jew, they say, wait a minute, I'm in the kingdom of God. I can trace my lineage back to Jacob and to Isaac and Abraham. Well, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh, that's flesh. Flesh and blood hath no part in the kingdom of God. It's not what, where, where you came from, who you are, who your family were, all the good works, and maybe they legitimately did, good works for the Lord's name. Maybe they brought you to church since you were little, and maybe uh, all the way back to great-great-grandparents. They've all been in church, and they've all been wonderful people. But know this, that which is born of the flesh, that's flesh. That has no bearing in the kingdom. doesn't matter if you can go back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You still must be born again. This is required. No matter who you are or what you are, there's a difference between that which is of the flesh and that which is of the Spirit. You can see that in churches too as men and women are brought to the altar by emotions and by the pulling on the flesh of man, you can see a difference in repentance that's of the flesh, that originates in the flesh of man versus that that originated by the working of the Holy Ghost of God. One brings forth life and one brings forth death. One will stay to the bitter end and one when the sun comes up and persecutions arise, they'll wither out. What's the difference? I'm telling you folks, God's not drawing people to the altar that get up unchanged and unrepentant. When God does a work, God does a work. And God will keep it as well. So, marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus, don't get hung up. Don't marvel. Don't sit and wonder on being born again. Remember what he's thinking about? He's thinking going into his mother's womb again. Why, that's the craziest thing that I've ever heard. You know, maybe we don't see that as much when we read it. But think about it. Here's an old man saying, you're telling me that I need to go back into my mama's womb and come out again? I mean, you see the mocking that's there? This is the craziest thing that I've ever heard. Jesus says, don't get hung up on that. He's given it to us in terms that you and I understand it. And so He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. So think about the picture here. We, we all understand how the wind works. We all know that man has no control over the wind. The wind blows where it wants to. You've got no control or guidance. Man doesn't give the wind a command to go somewhere. It blows where it listeth. That word means to determine, to choose, to prefer. So the wind goes where the wind wants to go. With no control over by man, thou hearest the sound, but canst not tell whence it cometh. Where did that breeze come from? 
Could we go to a place on the earth and say, right here is where that breeze started and then it blew all the way down through here and got to me? It's an amazing thing, ain't it? Where did it come from? And where does it go? How can it blow a tree down at this house and a half a mile down the road there's nothing? Where did it go? You, you don't know. It's above your head. It's above my head. We can't explain a lot of these things. But you do see the effect. It's not something made up. Just because we don't fully understand it or we don't have full control over it doesn't mean it's not real. Because you can see the working and you can hear the working of the wind. There in my office, we've got a window. It's got a little, used to be a speaker. And when the wind blows, it'll come through that and it'll whistle. And I know immediately that the wind's blowing. I can hear the effect of the wind as it passes through that speaker. Well, I don't believe in the wind. I've never seen it. Well, that's pretty silly, really. It's pretty silly. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, don't get hung up that you must be born again. You don't even understand the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it goes, but you know that it's there. You can see the effects of the wind. But canst not tell whence it cometh, whether it goeth. So where is the wind? Who controls that? We know the, the natural wind now. It doesn't have a mind of its own. But it's controlled. So in Psalm 107, 25, For He commandeth God, and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. The Lord can make a wind that raises the waves in the sea. And so the Lord is behind the wind. But we also know this, and I don't believe it's too far out on a limb. In Acts chapter 2, we know the day of Pentecost. And there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. We know what that wind was. That was the Holy Ghost coming in and beginning His ministry among man. And so the Holy Ghost likened unto wind, wind a type of the Holy Spirit of God as He works. So if we look here and we see that the wind is the Spirit, we recognize that no man has control over the Spirit, but He goes and now, I realize the natural wind is controlled by God, but you've got to get them all three together now. Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all three one and they're all three God. The mind of the Spirit is not separate from the mind of God. The will of the Spirit is not separate from the will of God. They're three in person, but they're one in essence. They've got one will, one mind, one desire, and one work. So when the Spirit goes where the Spirit chooses, that's also where God chose. They're not, they're not divided and chopped up and working one against another. So the Spirit goes where He wills. And we don't know where He came from. And we don't know where He's going to go next. We don't know what service He's working in now. What service He'll work in tonight. What heart that He's speaking to now. And who He's going to draw next week. We don't know any of that. But we know this. When the Spirit is working, we can see the evidence of His work. And we can hear it too. When somebody begins to speak the wisdom of God by the inspiration of the Spirit, you can hear the sound of it. Though it's the same voice, there's a different sound. Greg said many times a different ring to it. It's a good way to put it. It's anointed by the power of the Spirit. Why did He come? Where did he go? Well, we don't know. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So that word so, it means uh, in this way or in this manner is everyone that's born of the Spirit. Now does that mean, I've heard this interpreted this way and really 
if you say it fast, it sounds all right. But if you think about the logic behind it, it doesn't work. Is he saying that because I'm born of the Spirit, now I'm like the wind? And I just blow wherever I want to go. That, that's not right. But we're talking about now, Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus what it is to be born again. And Nicodemus... Everyone that's born of the Spirit, it's, it's like the wind. It's not guided by man. The Spirit is not wielded by man. It's not the preacher that brings the Spirit and puts Him on you. No, this is a mystery to man. This is not man's work. But they that are born of the Spirit just as you were when you were in the house of God and God came by your way and convinced and persuaded and drew you to the Lord Jesus Christ, where did He come from that day? I don't know. I don't know where He came from that day. Why did He come to me that day? Why did the wind blow out the back? I, I don't know. That's where God directed it to blow. So if we nail that down then, why did God convince me that day? Because that's where God chose to go. It's not random occurrences. There is no random occurrences. There's no chance. There's not luck. There's not happenstance. But that day, God directed you to that place and God directed the Spirit to you. And you didn't see anything go on. But you heard the effects of it. You knew that there was a work that was going on within you. And the amazing thing is that work has been continued even to this day, hasn't it? That day that God came to you, drew you and saved you, that day changed the course of the rest of your life. And He's still working today. So uh, Nicodemus, so is everyone born of the Spirit. Remember in the prologue, verse 13 of chapter 1, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So who's behind the wind? This is God doing this work. Over and over again we're going to see that. So in verse number 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Nicodemus still can't understand it. So remembering this, he's asking about being born again. He's asking about how that occurs. That's what these verses to follow. Jesus is going to explain being born again in the verses that are to follow. So we want to try to stay on the topic in John 6:52 the Jews strove among themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat Luke 1:34 here's Mary how can these things be seeing I know not a man as God speaking to the heart of man man just can't understand it with a natural eye with a natural heart you start talking that you need to be born again and everybody in the church, everybody that you speak to, the vast majority, I won't say everybody, think that they're already saved. They're already good. They're already right with God. And they have no idea what you're talking about. You know what's needed? They need to, the birth from above. God to open the eyes open the mind and open the heart. So Jesus says in verse 10, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? And Greg mentioned this last week, but if you read it, <clears throat> if you read it literally, the A is not in there. Art thou master? And that means instructor or teacher. Art thou master of Israel? So I realize some may argue, some may not take it. He, he may have been the chief authority or teacher in Israel at this time. And if not, 
he was certainly one of the top. Jesus says, you're master of Israel, and you don't know these things. Isn't that amazing? That here's a man that the whole nation looks up to, that the whole nation respects as a man of wisdom, that everybody would say, if you have a question, if you could get to Nicodemus, he could give you an answer that would be right. This is a, this is a subject matter expert in the things of God. That's what the people thought of Nicodemus. And Jesus says, you're a master of Israel, and you don't even know this. Ain't it amazing? And so what happens? Well, the blind are leading the blind, and they're all heading to the ditch. People today preaching and teaching and easy believism and just confess and believe and you're going to be all right, come to the altar and make your decision. And all of these works, they're looked up to and highly esteemed. But they do not know that there must be a work of God done before a trip to an altar and salvation can be had. Ain't that the truth? Well, God's going to do the work after I get them to the altar. But that doesn't happen. And so people are deceived. Art thou master? In Isaiah 9.16, the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. I realize in the flesh it's easy to look up to men. But you always have to remember Man may err. Man can fall. Man can miss the message of the Word of God. What ought to be the master, the ruling factor in every Christian's life? It ought to be the Word of God. And if the Word of God is contradictory to man, we ought to lay the man aside and believe the Word of God. The leaders were causing people to err. So God help us to know what the Bible says. Verse 11. Maybe we'll read two or three verses here. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So here Jesus is giving his credibility as a witness. Who is this man, Jesus? Well, he is the one, he's testifying that, that he does know. If anybody knows the things of God... Wouldn't you say that the God-man that came from God is qualified to testify about who God is and what God is doing? Jesus, and listen, listen to it carefully. We speak what we do know and testify what we've seen. This is not second-hand. Jesus did not hear this from somebody and He's passing along the information He's speaking that that he's heard directly and that that he's seen with his own eyes. <coughs> this isn't tradition passed down from the elders. This is eyewitness testimony that the Lord is giving. In just a little while, in verse 13, we read it. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven even the Son of Man which is in heaven. If you look on over in this chapter, verse 32, what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. So Jesus is giving firsthand eyewitness testimony. Is this man, and you know as a jury is hearing a witness testify, you know what they're determining in their minds? Is this man a credible witness? And if you got a good defense, they're going to attack the credibility of the witness. This man's been a liar his whole life. Well, I'm not going to believe him then. 
But this man Jesus, is he a credible witness? Ought we believe what this man has to say? But listen, this is John the Baptist in verse 32 of this chapter. What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. That's what he says. No man receiveth his testimony. That don't sound very good, does it? But you say, well, wait a minute. There's some that have. Okay. Verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit without measure to him. So how can it be then that no man hears his testimony and yet that some men have heard his testimony? Is that not a direct contradiction one with another? If I say that nobody's heard, and in the next sentence I say, yeah, there's some people that heard. I've contradicted myself. But we know this is not a contradiction. John the Baptist is saying that this testimony from Jesus is a spiritual testimony and nobody's received it. So who did receive it then? It wasn't them. It was those that had been born again. You see that? God had done a work in their hearts. It wasn't the man individually of his own wisdom and righteousness and goodness that received the testimony of God. As in John 1, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God had done a work. They had been born from above. They heard the testimony and received the words of Jesus. So in Luke 10, Jesus says, All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. So do you believe that's still the case today? That no man knows Jesus except for the Father. No man knows the Father except for Jesus. And the only way anybody else can know Him is that the Lord would reveal Him to us. That's the same thing that Jesus is telling Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, that a work of God must be done in order for man to hear the Word. If I've told you earthly things and you believe not, so Jesus has explained this new birth Jesus could have said, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God must come into your heart and regenerate and resurrect you, bring you to life. He must free you from the bonds of the devil. He must free you from the bonds of sin. He must grant you sight that you can see and He must draw you to the Lord. Now that would have been a whole lot more confusing. But see, he's explaining it in earthly terms. He's saying what has to happen is you must have a new birth. And Jesus says, if I speak of earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If you can't understand the simple stuff, is that not where man is today? Man does not understand even the simple stuff. On his own, man has no hope whatsoever of coming to God for salvation. There's no way that man is coming to God for salvation on his own. God must. This, you must be born again. This is why. And so, no man hath ascended but he that's come down. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.12, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither now are you able. So he's, Paul is writing there to a church 
And Paul says, I would have desired to have fed you with meat. I think we can understand the picture here. A baby can't eat steak. They have to start on milk. Then they have to go to things that are ground up, mushed up vegetables and fruits. Then you can start giving them soft things. But as they grow and they get stronger, they can have the stuff that's tougher and yet that builds them up more. So the picture is growing here. But here's a church that couldn't eat the strong meat. You know, there's a pile of folks like that. All they can drink in is the milk of the Word. They've never grew beyond a babe in Christ. And when you begin to speak the strong meat, there's things in the Word of God that's hard to understand. Hebrews 5.11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing as you're dull of hearing. There's things in the Word of God that's not easy to swallow. And in order for them to be swallowed and believed, we're going to have to grow a little bit. So Jesus is saying here, if I tell you of earthly, if we never get past the milk, you know what's milk? God called me and I came to Him. Is that true? That's true. That's true. But you know, that's just a, that's just a simple understanding of it. But if I'll get that and believe that, then I can start to see, well, I was a sinner bound by the devil and I was blind. And the Lord had to call me for me to come. That's a little stronger meat there. But if I can get that down and believe it, I can say, well, I came to God only because He called me. I wouldn't have come otherwise. We're building up. We're up to, to vegetables that are soft now. But you know, as you grow a little more and you get to the strong meat, you begin to realize that this was a complete work of God, hands off from man, and God chose to save. And God chose to draw. And I didn't have anything to do with that. And thank God I didn't. That's hard to be swallowed. If we don't understand the earthly things, if we can't drink the milk, you're going to choke to death on that piece of steak. You see that naturally. That's the way it is spiritually as well. So with that also, you've got to recognize as you're teaching and preaching the Word of God, there's going to be some that are strong and that will scarf it down and love every bite of it. There's going to be some that's going to have a hard time chewing on it. But you keep feeding the Word of God and they'll grow on it. And so... In verse 14, wait, let me back up to 13. No man's ascended. In Deuteronomy 30, and this is going to be quoted in Romans chapter 10, but Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 30, It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. So Jesus, He's the only qualified witness that there is. And God didn't leave it that, well, you've got to ascend to this place in order to be able to grasp this salvation. You're going to have to go over the sea to get it. I mean, just plain and simple, there's some big work you've got to do in order to get this. That's not the way it is. The Lord Jesus brought it. I mean, you think about it now. Here we are, 2,000 years after the fact. We're thousands of miles away from Jerusalem where all of this happened and occurred. We're here not in New York City or Washington or Los Angeles, a major metropolis. But here we are in a little corner of the world in the backwoods that most people's going to call a bunch of hillbillies. 
in a little church that out of a community of just a few is looked down on by the majority. And yet, God chose in this place, in these seats, that the Word of God would be delivered even to where you are. God brought it right to you. And we didn't have to make a big journey to go get it. So that you can't say it's because I did this that God came. But God came to you. He came down from heaven that this gospel could come to you. Nigh you. Even in your mouth and heart. And so He is the only qualified witness that there is. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So in the wilderness, we're back in numbers now. You all know this story. The children of Israel, they were sinful. They were murmurers and complainers and whiners. And they talked bad about God and they complained about God. They complained about Moses. They complained about manna. They complained about quails. And they were unsatisfied. And God sent serpents. They're in the desert. God sends serpents, snakes, fiery serpents. They were biting. And the poison, the venom was killing those that were bitten. And so it gets bad enough that they say, Moses, pray to God for us. We've done wrong and we've sinned. And God, Moses prays, and God says, make a a fiery serpent out of brass, put it on a pole, and raise him up. And when somebody's bitten, if they'll look to that, they can live. That's what Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus, an Old Testament scholar, he knows exactly what Jesus is saying. And we do as well. We know the reference. And you know, just an interesting fact, you look on ambulances, they've got the little cross, and in it they've got a pole with a snake on it. That's from this Scripture. That's the brazen serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness. And so here, Jesus said, just like that serpent was raised up, and everybody that looked to the serpent lived, not because they had anti-venom in their veins, not because the doc came and worked on them, but because they looked under the means that God provided for them to be healed, they were healed. Even so, in this manner, in this way, must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the serpent raised up on a pole. The Lamb of God, the Son of Man, He's raised up on a pole. So He's speaking about His death here. He's going to the cross to die and everyone that looks to Him for salvation, not from a snake bite, naturally speaking, but from the venom of the devil and sin and corruption and wickedness, that that's dragging man not just down to an early grave, but dragging man into hell. Those that look to Him can live. That's why he's came. So the brazen serpent, a picture, a type, even so must the Son of Man. He says this in Luke 24. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. This is what God was doing. God sent the Messiah in to live perfectly according to the law that perfection could be imputed unto you. That as God looks on your account, He sees the perfect, sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He went to the cross. It behooved Him to suffer and die and raise again the third day because of your sin that required payment. And so He completed the work of God. That was the plan of God from the beginning. In the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now let me ask you a question. 
Does that say that anyone, everyone, everywhere can have eternal life? People that believe like we believe, they take this verse and they say, it says whosoever. And that's, that's an attack. I've heard that till I'm sick of it. But you know what it says? That whosoever believeth. You know who's going to look to Jesus and be saved? Whoever. Whoever. Any. All. Every. The whole. So what's he saying? What he's saying is that everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've never said one thing that contradicts that verse. I fully believe. And I'm confident that everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish. In John 10, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. The salvation that God gives is sure, perfect, and eternal. It will not end. Nothing I can do can end what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. Who's going to receive this salvation as in Hebrews 7, wherefore He's able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Who's going to receive this salvation? Whoever believes is going to receive this salvation. That's, that's what this verse says. Whoever believes will be saved. So, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So remembering back now to the serpent in the wilderness, did that serpent have anything to do with them perishing? It was there for the opposite reason, wasn't it? See, the problem was they were perishing already. Right? They had already had the plague of serpents, the people was dying, and they needed a means to be saved. Well, you know, when Jesus came, let's just say this, Jesus never comes. What's the end of man outside of the Lord Jesus? He's going to perish. Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. Jesus didn't come to cause harm, but He's like the serpent in the wilderness. He's there that life could be had. And God in this manner, God so loved, in this manner loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The love of God was displayed. So the Bible says in Romans 5.8, God commendeth His love to put on display toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the love of God that Jesus Christ was given and His life is going to be sacrificed. That sinners, that enemies of God, that those that are hateful and odious towards God can look to Him and live from what they had no chance of living through. If you got bit by the fiery serpent, there was no surviving that. You can be bit by a copperhead, and the, the vast majority of copperhead bites do not result in death, only in little babies and very old people. But you get bit by a coral snake, you get bit by a king cobra, or a black mamba, you're probably going to die if you don't get somewhere 
where they've got anti-venom. I'm telling you this bite, the bite of the serpent in the garden, it's 100% certain that that bite will kill you. You'll lift your eyes in hell in the wrath of God for eternity. When did, when did that come to pass? That came to pass in the garden. Adam fell in the garden and death passed on all men from that time forward for all have sinned. And I'm about three verses ahead of myself and don't mean to be that way. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth... Again, this is the same wording as verse 15. Jesus was given... Well, see, Jesus died for the whole world. No, that's not what this verse says either. This verse says that God gave His Son for those who would believe. Listen to it. That He gave His only begotten Son that, in order that, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved the world. God sent His Son. God sent His Son for this purpose that all who believe wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. Did Jesus die for an unbelieving, unrepentant world that's already died and went to hell? Not according to this verse. You're going to have to read it carefully and closely and see what the Word of God says. In John, 1 John 4, in Romans 5, 8, God commended His love toward, not the world, toward us. Who's us? That's the church. In 1 John 4, verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. <clears throat> Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus Christ was sent to propitiate, to make atonement, to appease the wrath of God for our sins that we could be reconciled, brought back into a relationship with God and not perish, not lift our eyes in eternal hell forever and ever, but to have everlasting life and to live in the presence of God forevermore. Jesus came to save those that would believe. And that's what the Bible teaches. And so... In verse 17, God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So God didn't send Him to bring condemnation. At this point, and we've already said, there didn't need to be any condemnation because he that believeth not is... He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. The problem is, and the reason Jesus came is, that man was already condemned. He was already guilty. In John 5.45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. They were already accused. Jesus didn't have to speak against them. They were already guilty of breaking the law of God. They were already sinners. In Romans 5 verse 12, As by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Where did it come from? There was the serpent. The serpent bit Adam. And from Adam, death passed. This is the Bible. Death passed upon all men. One man's sin brought death to our day 6,000 years later. See, I'm not born innocent 
and a free moral agent and we're waiting on me to decide whether I'm going to sin or not. I'm born already inclined and with a nature even before, before I can even walk. They're already selfish and self-willed and rebellious. It's in them. You know where that came from? You can trace her all the way back to the garden. There's where it came from. Man was already condemned. And death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here's an easy way. This is what he's saying here. An easy way to know this is true is look at the lives of man. And everybody sinned. And everybody past of us, they've died. I don't know how you can argue that. And so 5.18 of Romans, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. So now read it. Romans 5, verse 18, By the offense of one, Adam, Adam's who we're talking about, by Adam's offense, judgment came upon all to condemnation. Adam's sin brought me under condemnation. It's what the Bible says. Adam's sin brought me under condemnation. And he's going to flip it there in verse 18. And in the same way, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to me for righteousness. So you see, Jesus didn't come to condemn. He didn't need to. Man was already condemned. Man was already dying. He was already lost. He was already guilty. And hell was already his home. He came and was lifted up that believers might have a means of salvation that was not possible without Him. He sent Him not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And we're out of time. We'll pick up right there next time. And maybe when we get through this, we'll go back and just breeze through it quickly and get the whole discourse in a shorter verse.